Hi, and welcome to the fifth serving of the VSuit podcast. For those new to VSuit, this is an audio-only podcast, so we don't want anyone to know our guests are significantly better looking than us. Speaking of which, I'd like to introduce this episode's guest, Gabe Van Zansen. Um Gabe, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Excellent, glad, glad you could make it. Um, just in case anyone missed on Twitter, this is actually our second attempt at the uh, uh, show for this week. Uh, we had some slight logistical issues, um, nonetheless of me not being able to organise a podcast around my home life. Um, so speaking of disasters, um, last time I saw you at the uh, London VMware User Group doing a, a really neat presentation on um, cheap disaster recovery. Yeah, uh, I did. Um, I showed how you can use uh, PowerShell to uh, do a, a simple disaster recovery of your vSphere environment. Cool, cool. Uh, is that sort of a series of static scripts, or is it a bit more dynamic than that? <clears throat> no, the the, the, the scripts themselves are, of course, very static, but uh, they allow you to just uh, make weekly uh, export of your vSphere, uh, your vCenter settings. And um, so you take in account all the settings like the resource pools, uh, folders you made, uh, permissions uh, that are granted to users or groups, um, <clears throat> the VMs itself, of course. Uh, these settings are all exported into uh, separate CSV files. And then on the, uh, after you switch to a disaster recovery site, you can use the scripts uh, to import these settings uh, again. So how do you specify what VMs uh, you want you want to do? Can you exclude some? <clears throat> no, um, what I did now is I just uh, export um, all uh, VMs uh, related to their resource pool and related to the folder they're in. Um, and actually the VMs itself, uh, I don't export them because that's uh, uh, the only requirement for this disaster recovery. Uh, is that somehow you get the VMs, that, so the VMDK and the VMX file, uh, you make sure it gets uh, to the disaster recovery site. Um, it's built for a number of customers uh, of ours, which have uh, mostly uh, replicated storage, but they only have two or three ESXOs, and it's often not worth uh, to them to buy a complete uh, SRM environment for it. So when you have replicated storage or when you restore your VMDKs on your disaster recovery site, then uh, the scripts uh, uh, start scanning all uh, data stores and every VMX that, uh, that it finds, it automatically registers uh, into the new vCenter. Interesting. So yeah, you need two vCenters then, same as SRM. <clears throat> Yes, uh, on the on the secondary side you have a vCenter which is uh, empty, and you can leave uh, shut down uh, when you're not um, when you're not uh, doing a disaster recovery. I guess that's a pretty license friendly way of doing it. Yes, that brings up another topic though. Yeah, I just had an idea. Uh, you could potentially use these scripts to. Prolong your sixty-day day vCenter trials, can't you? <laughs> um, if you can, if, actually, if you, if you, not. Explore, you can't do that. Uh, well, you could prolong your vCenter um, uh, trial license, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. but your ESX host, uh, I'm not sure if you could do that. No, probably not. But I'm thinking if, if you have a center in your home lab or something, uh, and you have a you have a sixty day license for it, um, um, I'm guessing you could export no. all your settings, reinstall it, and then port the settings again. Ah, uh, okay, in, in that way, yeah, you have to reinstall. Yeah, yeah, of course, but that's a that's a sneaky way of prolonging your home lab without valid vCenter licenses, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but. but maybe a bit far-fetched. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's that's pretty cool. I'm thinking uh, doing all of this without having anything else uh, besides replicated uh, storage, that's uh, a pretty neat idea and a pretty decent way to to actually do it. Um, Well, well, the scripts aren't uh, aren't finished uh, at all because... Okay. um, there, there's much room for improvement if you look at scripts uh, that uh, have been built b- by Alan Renouf or, or Luke Dakins. You can see there's much, much to improve in, in the scripts uh, I have. Um, I also got some help from uh, Luke and, and Alan and uh, Arnim van Lieshout. They, they helped me when I stumbled across some stupid things in, in uh, PowerShell. Um, and and that's also why I posted the scripts online to just make them public to anyone and extend them for their own uh, needs. Yeah, it it does look like the PowerShell community, uh, even as a subset of the uh, VMware community at large, are even more helpful than the regular VMware community. Yeah, uh, every time you'd have a quick look through the the forums, or if anyone mentions something on Twitter. Within 30 seconds, you've got four guys absolutely jumping over each other to try and yeah. help you out. Um, Actually, okay. uh, sometimes uh, uh, when I want to check if uh, Luke D is uh, sick or not, uh, I just pose a PowerShell question. If he doesn't respond within 30 seconds, I know there's something wrong. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> That's a great idea. It's a wake-up call. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. But uh, uh, We've talked about this before that the 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 VMware community is pretty um, sharing and, and helpful to to each each and every one of their members. Uh, I believe that might have been edited out in the first episode, though. Yeah, it might. Okay, it might have been. I, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can't handle the truth. No, uh, the thing is that that is actually true. Uh, the the v- it, it kind of re- resembles an open source community in a way, uh, which I've been involved with in, for several several projects before, uh, where you actually have this real sense of community towards the technology, and everyone's trying to help each other out. And that's uh, that's pretty unique, I think, in in an enterprise level uh, setting like this. Well, yeah. I mean, for me, I think they're even better because. In, in uh, a few open source, especially Linux related communities, um, th- th- there's quite some help, but also quite some uh, harsh uh, talk uh, now and then. Yeah, that's, and that's true. And, and in the VMware community, I, I yet have to see uh, one uh, bad discussion uh, on, on any other subject. Yeah, never really any flaming. If somebody doesn't know something, they tend to just tell them, hey, you're wrong, or Something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the odd, the odd twit piss, but that's just normally vendors. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's normally just fun, though, basically. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's more of a spirited uh, discussion on, on, on stuff and, instead of actual real flame wars. You're, you, I've been witnessing a few, a few of those in the open source community before, and that's, that's no fun at all. Um, at least not if you're in the middle of it. So, nah, but I, I agree. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty unique in that setting, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's not many other places that would, um, you know, where you can get the underlying framework of a product which, um, you know, Gabe's company is making money out of, but as he's pretty much given away that intellectual property for free. Yeah, you might have to tweak it a little bit to your own needs, and yes, it's not supported, but should you so desire and you want, um, have the time and energy to put, uh, some you know some final touches to say run scripts to change the host IP addresses, like, which I think is one of the party tricks that SRM has. You've basically built SRM, not a cheap product for free, um, which is you know, really quite a cool thing to do. But um, obviously, uh, we said earlier that SRM needs shared storage, and that's currently until the latest uh, features seem to be released, which um, did get talked about on the last uh, roundtable, so last maybe last but one or two, the host-based replication, um, and that will be quite an interesting thing to to see when it uh, when it occurs. But at the moment, is it cheaper to buy Veeam? I don't know. Um, but so it brings us nicely along to storage, because uh, I see that uh, Christian, you uh, recently had a a nice new shiny iMega box delivered. Yeah, I got it today, actually. Um, so just now, five minutes before we went live here with the recording, I just connected it to my my home network. So the IS4 looks... Uh, I, I've played with one or two uh, earlier as well, but not extensively testing it. So it, it, it'll be fun having one of those at home playing around with. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Gabe mentioned earlier that... Um, uh, there were some firmware issues or improvements coming up. Um, well, uh, issues. Um, Not issues, issues as such, but the, uh, there were some. There was some talk yeah, about a, a, a new firmware for the i4. Yeah, performance-wise, iSCSI is uh, clearly slower than uh, than NFS, and mm-hmm. it's uh, expected that um, that maybe there are some changes on on that uh, field. Okay, I, I tried um, talking to Chad Sackett at EMC about that today, but he didn't want to confirm any release dates to me, so it's uh, it's still out there. So um, 4.1 update one has been released recently, and I hear a lot of people are updating their home labs, but um, not quite yet into production. You guys uh, played around with it yet? Uh, I, I updated. Uh almost the same day and didn't find any problems uh, with it but also the the improvements are not noticeable in home lab uh, the, the the most improvements are more like if you really run into one of the issues uh, that were fixed in this uh, in this uh, update yeah so no real feature no real feature additions in this one just bug fixes Nothing big, I think. Uh, there are some new, new customization support, though, uh, for guest OSS, I guess. Uh, service Pack 1 for Windows 7 and 2008, amongst those are now 
supported via the customization wizard. Yeah. Let, let me ask you about Service Pack 1 for uh, Windows 7 in 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've seen so few issues with Windows 7 and, and 2008. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to go to Service Pack 1 because probably cost me 200 uh, megabytes of memory I'm going to lose every time I boot it again. <laughs> I, I haven't looked at the the uh, the, uh, the memory footprint of of a before and after setup, but I've, I've upgraded a couple of servers and I've updated a couple of Windows Seven computers that work and no problems at all. But then again, there there aren't that many fixes in it besides the hot fixes and whatever you get from Windows Update anyway, <clears throat> and some updates for. Hyper-V and uh, remote desktop protocols, I guess. So there, that isn't such a huge, huge uh, update for end users, at least. At least not for those not using remote desktops and, and terminal services. Yeah, it seems to be more or less just an update roll-up to me. Yeah. Okay, so I guess unless you're really going to be hitting that, uh, is it remote FX technology? Mm. Exactly. Uh, which in itself sounds like a fairly niche part of VDI, which in itself is a little bit of a niche. Um, so I can see it, you know, everyone using it. Um, but quite a clever idea. I don't know if anyone's sort of seen some of the concepts behind it. It seems to be not quite virtualizing a GPU, but allowing a better sort of GPU pass through to a, a desktop. So if you had a, uh, like a, Say a CAD workstation that you wanted to virtualize, you could actually do some do some neat stuff with that. Um, but I guess the uh, the numbers of people that are wanting to run CAD CAD workstations as, as uh, VDI endpoints are uh, few and far between. Yeah, give them a, 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 a one of those CAD or workstation blades or something instead, uh, instead of trying to to do that stuff on. On VDI or terminal-based systems. Yeah, it's no place for server-based. Although I suppose isn't the whole concept of using something like the View Connection Server or Microsoft's broker that you can have the one broker that everyone connects to now, and if they are a user that needs a server-based environment, it'll bung them onto a Zen desktop session or a um, Windows RDP session, or if they're a user that requires that their apps require a full VDI desktop, that it'll dump them to a VDI desktop, or if they're these super users that need a CAD workstation, it'll just, it'll dump them to a, uh, a a desktop blade within you know still with a connection of whether it's Citrix HDX, PC over IP, or whatever Microsoft, you know Microsoft's equivalent, um, so that you you everyone benefits not someone well benefits but everyone uses the same methodology to connect to their their desktop system because uh, I guess if you're doing VDI and half your people are having to go in through one portal and half your people are going in through another portal then you're not getting any of this reduced um, you know reduced uh, complexity and in theory cost associated with it but, but doesn't Citrix uh, offer this already? I, I think they do. I, I, I didn't know. I know the Microsoft one uh, offers it, but I don't know if View does. I know View will. Um, you can have a 
a terminal services pool, but Worldview allow you to connect almost back out outside the virtual world into a physical server. Yes, it does. Oh, cool. I've uh, um, really only had a, a very limited exposure playing with it, even though I sat at the exam for it last week. Um, so, yeah, just sort of sped up a, a very small uh, view environment at home, and uh, it looked, looked pretty neat. Um, it's, I just wonder whether uh, the, it is easy to do when you're scaling it out to a few thousand desktops. I guess uh, Simon Long's going to be the guy to ask about that because he seems to have fun trying to scale out his 3,000 or whatever it was uh, that uh, he's been doing. Okay. Yeah, I think he powered on 4,000 desktops at once or something. That's uh, that's one hell of a bootstorm, but okay. We'll have to talk to him about that, I guess. Uh, with regards to also to Service Pack 1 for Windows uh, 7 and 2008 R2 server, um, they finally got ma- memory management, didn't they? Uh, with the dynamic memory stuff that's in Service Pack 1. Um, um, wasn't yeah yeah that's in service pack one yeah exactly Uh, yeah yeah Uh, interesting that does that mean you can start to overcommit or is it doing is it just doing memory compression no it's it's neither (laughs) Um, what 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 it does is that it dynamically adds physical memory to a virtual machine when the virtual machine needs it and also takes it away again which means Ooh. that only certain OSs, and I think it's only 2008, can handle this. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. kind of similar to, to ballooning uh, trademark. Mm, Not no. quite, because ballooning, uh, when you use ballooning, the VM will see the entire memory space yeah. uh, when you set it up. So if, if you give it four gigs, it, it'll have four gigs. Uh, and then you, you can... It'll balloon it up to, let's see, say six or or something like that if it needs it. Uh, and, but the uh, the Microsoft version uh, that, here. That's not completely correct. Nah, you can't, you can't balloon up to six or so. No, uh, but when it, you give it, the VM four gigs of memory, yeah. that that's it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it, you it, can't it dynamically. Sure. Well, you can you can add more memory with the the hot add memory. Yeah, um, yeah. and and, and, and VMware with. PowerShell or something to script that if you wanted it dynamic. Yeah, but you don't don't want it. No, no, it sounds so, like a really crazy idea. Yeah, vSphere has enough techniques to um, to give you all the memory you need uh, and and do memory management on on much better and advanced way than than Hyper-V does now. The, yeah. the biggest problem with Hyper-V dynamic memory is that. You, you have to assign a, a starting memory, which is then assigned to the VM uh, at, at boot time. And when um, uh, a, a virtual machine, when the guest OS doesn't need all the extra memory, it stays at this limit. And when you now start installing applications, the application only sees this lower limit. And uh, some applications really have problems with that because... Uh, when there is uh, usage of more memory and uh, Hyper-V decides to add one or two gigs of memory to that virtual machine, then the application won't benefit from the extra memory because it never knew to check every second if the amount of memory is still the same. 
And that's the big difference in, in vSphere. In vSphere, you assign four gigs, and the machine, only, uh, the, the guest always sees four gigs of memory. Exactly. But uh, does, the, uh, does the Microsoft version actually remove memory again, or do you need to reboot the, the OS to actually get it down to the startup uh, value again? No, it can also remove. Okay. Dynamically, yes. Okay. I was pretty sure it actually just added, and then you, you would have to to restart to free no. it up again, but, I, but I, I'm probably wrong then. I guess with vSphere, it's more important to size your, your VMs correct from the word go. Um, so, you know, the importance of, well, not necessarily picking the right capacity planning tool, but you know, well, it is knowing your workload. Well, it's not for every environment. And uh, actually, yeah. actually, no, because um, in, in uh, vSphere, it wouldn't hurt you as much when you over-assign memory than it would be in, an, in a Hyper-V environment. Yeah. Because when I assign uh, um, four gigs uh, to a number of uh, virtual machines and they only use one gig each, then uh, ESX will only take one uh, gig per virtual machine on physical memory. Even with transparent page sharing, it will be less than, than that one gig. So... Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter that you uh, assigned more memory than uh, than you really need. It, it's not good to do this because uh, HA will will bring uh, will give you some trouble. Uh, yeah. uh, you will have uh, smaller slots that you or no less slots that you can add VMs into. Yeah, um, I, have they resolved that issue? It's and it's 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 a well, I say issue. It's it's a bit of a non-issue where if you're running the new or the newer Intel-based hosts, that they um, by default they use large memory pages which don't share very well, and so <laughs> if it doesn't actually cause a problem because when you do hit memory contention, it switches to small pages and you get your, your transfer and page sharing kicks in. So there's not actually a problem. It's just from a record, reporting point of view, um, that four gig that you assign to a VM, it shows us it's taken an absolute bucket load. Um, and so your hosts look busier than they are, even yeah. though when you do, do hit keep the in mind that Do keep in mind that when uh, uh, you, uh, you enable large pages on a guest OS... It's not the complete OS that is being large paged. So if you run uh, Windows with um, SQL uh, 2008, for example, okay. then only SQL, uh, the, the SQL part is large paged. That's and I, I, I wrote a posting uh, on that, uh, on that it's, it's more difficult to see how much free memory you really got. Uh, and I got a lot of response on that uh, also by, by Duncan and Frank. Uh, yeah, I saw them some, some follow-up posts from Frank yeah, about it. Who explained uh, it, it even better than I did. But they explained it more in-depth on what's really happening with the large pages. Um, because I knew about large pages onto large pages and large pages onto small pages. Okay. But it seems there's also small pages onto large pages. And that's where I got lost. <laughs> no, no wonder. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll we'll have to try to find those. We'll have to try to find those those posts and uh, and link them on the the uh, TV Soup uh, website when we yes. release this. So, uh, yeah, in I, my I, 
My blog posts on the large pages I refer to to, the, to their posts. Okay, okay. We'll post up some, some links to you. Uh, that's no problem. Uh, I also know that uh, uh, someone at VMware, I think it was uh, Eric Horschman, who posted a long uh, blog posting about hypervisor memory management done right, which was kind of a response to the uh, dynamic memory in Service Pack 1, where he uh, goes through a lot of the technologies that VMware uses that Microsoft doesn't provide, like guest ballooning and, high, and memory compression and stuff. So that, that's also something we need to to uh, to uh, link to as well, which it has a lot of really nice info uh, about the differences between Microsoft Solution and the uh, tested and proven VMware one. Cool. Sounds sounds worth reading. Um, I'm guessing that. Uh there's, there must be an ESX top uh, metric somewhere that will give you a more realistic counter, um, or certainly more more realistic counter than the VI client might well give you. Well, I looked for that, and um, Duncan has a reference to uh, to that in a posting, but it uh, turned out it's not quite what we're looking for. Like that, we that you can easily see how much. Space would be saved when you start uh, using transparent page sharing. Okay. Okay. It must, that's got to be a, f- a first for ESX top for a metric it doesn't really show. Well, it, shows- it has, but uh, I think you can uh, use other metrics to um, to calculate it. Because okay. oh, I know so that uh, vKernel, they have a capacity planner product, yep. and they told me they can handle this. Okay, that's that's interesting because I've I've not seen it yet. Um, unfortunately, due to changing jobs, I've lost some of my my, my larger lab, I, not my home based one. Uh, I had some of the uh, the newer uh, versions of the uh, the kernel product deployed, and it did have some good metrics. I didn't notice that one, but saying that the hosts within that lab are fairly elderly, so. I wouldn't have necessarily come across it, um, but that sounds like a, a pretty worthwhile thing to do. They they do some nice calculations with the the stats they can pull out from the API. Okay, um, and b- besides ESX top, you have a lot of other, or at least some other uh, performance uh, troubleshooting or performance related uh, uh, tools you could use, like VS CSI stats. Have any of you? You guys work with that any? Yeah, yeah, I've been using it uh, a couple of times when I was really out of any other options. And uh, again, I've written a blog post uh, on it. Some help from uh, some other guy that uh, wrote an Excel uh, script that can uh, import the CSV file from uh, vSCSIstat and make uh, nice graphics uh, out of it. And I saw later on that some other Dutch guy even made uh, very nice uh, 3D uh, histograms uh, with it. I believe he, his name is Eric Zandboer. That's possible, yeah. yeah. I, I think I saw something new from him today, actually, uh, with regards to, to doing some graphing with uh, the CSV files and PowerShell. Um, let's see if I can find that again. 
So you guys would normally look at the array as deeply as you can before you would start playing with these SCSI stats, correct? Yeah, because usually uh, when you you know the latency, um, it's it's like when you're using viscosity stats, it's more like determining what kind of load in in, in block sizes the the VM is um, uh, putting on storage, and usually you find that if you have storage related issues, there are either uh, above or below that layer. And and sell them in in the layer in between. Yeah, usually I make it to either start looking in ESX top and start seeing either guest kernel or device latency, and yes. uh, start to look to the array. And I stop there before I get to these fuzzy stats. I've only used it maybe once or twice, like you said, in the case of really there's nothing else left. But I, I guess if you can you know, start the storage troubleshooting before potentially you know, having to escalate something to the storage team and say, oh, your, your sound's going slowly when it might not necessarily be that. That's the uh, fun part is I am the storage team also. So <laughs> you, can, uh, you can blame yourself. Yep. Actually, I think I was wrong. There, there is a, an EMC uh, employee called Clinton Skitson or something like that. He posted something uh, today with regards to PowerShell scripts for monitoring and visualizing performance data. And what he does is he does uh, CSV file imports and uses uh, PowerShell to to uh, visualize the uh, the data. That's uh, it looks pretty cool actually. I haven't tested it. I just downloaded the, downloaded the documents for it and it looks looks really neat. So that's probably something that we could. Uh, link to as well. He uses uh, power gadgets to show and visualize the data. Uh, and don't think viscosity stats is one of the things in his examples, but uh, it looks like something that could be could be combined with his scripts as well to to visualize everything in in three nice, pretty little three D graphs. So pretty graphs are, are always good, especially management friendly. Especially because when you pull the data from Viscuzzy stats, to me, I don't know about you guys, but it was almost unreadable without graphing it out. Yeah. But I'm, I'm kind of wondering, how, how much Viscuzzy stats data do you want to show management? Probably <laughs> zero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dad, I'm finding myself having to dive a little bit deeper into storage today, um, which I had my, my first day at my new job. And... Uh, no sooner had they pretty much handed me my laptop than I was pointed in the direction of a UCS manager and told, go and um, build me some ESX service to boot from SAN. Having never used uh, NetApp SANs or uh, UCS before, it was a little bit of a baptism of fire, uh, and I've almost got there. But it's, uh, yeah, it's good fun. They, uh, Why would you boot it's from SAN? <sighs> I'm not entirely sure. I think they they figure that uh, having stateless blades and blades without any hardware inside them keep all of the, all of the spindles on the sand rather than yeah. on the uh, blades would uh, would be easier. But it's there are times when you really just want to stick a USB stick in the back of it and in, install ESXi to that. Yeah, I'm not personally a fan of, of uh, boot from sand myself. I prefer, yeah, like an SD card even at the smallest. I mean, drives are cheap enough to throw in there for a couple of a RAID 1. Yeah. 
It's not like the boot from Sam really takes up that much space. You've, you know, you're allocating a six gig LUN for the ESXi boot process, and it's only ever used when it boots up, given that ESXi sticks everything into a RAM disk anyway. So you can, you, know, you can get away with it, and but I don't know if it's going to make deploying large amounts of ESXi blades easy. It should do, or is is that really just you know? Would it be just as easy to do with um, regular UCS deployment? I don't know. I, I, I boot all my hosts from, from local drives, basically. Uh, there's been some discussion uh, lately as well with regards to VMware and supporting um, SD cards and USB sticks for running ESXi from uh, with regards to, uh, to actually su- getting support for it. And, and I don't remember all the details, but it, it seems like VMware is kind of moving away from supporting, especially SD cards uh, within Blades or within servers as the boot medium. Well, actually, the, <clears throat> there's a difference in support because I uh, I search for an HCL to to see if there are um, supported USB sticks mm-hmm. because I was writing a blog post uh, on it and. For uh, a customer, I now switch their whole environment onto USB sticks. But th- there's no HCL uh, on that. Um, I-, I do hear there are some changes on whether they support, uh, say, the-, the-, the way of booting uh, from USB and, and not a spe- specifically um, USB brands or-, or something, but just USB at all. I had to to hack some stuff to get my my new home server running as well because the the HP microserver doesn't come with uh, an internal CD uh, player, and uh, I the one I got doesn't have any uh, remote uh, administration card in it or the uh, ILO, uh, so I had to to create a a USB install. Uh, installer stick yesterday, but that's just for installing it on the local drives within it, so it's not running from the USB stick, but just using a USB stick instead of a CD to to actually install it. Okay, now I, I really install them on the USB because um, it's it's so easy, and also when you get updates, uh, I, I just pull out the USB stick, uh, um, make the update on it, and and put it back in again. Yeah, exactly. And you could basically just have multiple of them and upgrade the offline one and just exchange it as well. Yes, but but then uh, you do need host uh, profiles to to make it an easy task. Yeah, or PowerShell scripting to configure it. That works also. So, but yeah, you you would need to to do something to to keep the uh, the configurations uh, live if you if you change the uh, the boot medium, of course. Yeah, I think we might have covered before that you know with the the cost of a pair of the smallest um, you know internal hard drives that you can buy for a, a blade or for a, um, a rack mount server that gives you that little bit more resilience that you wouldn't necessarily have from a um, USB stick or SD card. But as it's only really used at boot time, uh, it is a toss up if you if you. <laughs> really do need to absolutely save that extra couple of hundred euros from the cost of each host I suppose you can almost find a justification for it 
So your customer moved from local drives to to USB based boot, Gabe. Uh, <clears throat> well, I moved them uh, to it because mm-hmm. okay. they, they they didn't have a clue on on what they wanted. They were still on ESX uh, three point five, mm-hmm. booting from NetAppSan. Okay. And um, I I I wanted to switch them um, to four point one, and the the fastest way for me was to just uh, have them boot from uh, USB because they also wanted to be to um, be able to easily revert back to the old ESX uh, 3.5 install. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And we had a lot of issues with the the, the NetApp sand because someone configured it completely wrong. So I, I needed a way to not rely to not have to rely on on the sand. And that's why I switched uh, to USB sticks. Exactly. Okay. So there's a there's a reasoning behind doing that. It's not just changing from local drives to USB just to to change it. So well, that, well, makes, that makes a lot of new, sense. Yeah, for new servers, uh, I, I would not buy uh, internal uh, disks anymore. I would just use uh, USB. And I okay. do know that in in future releases, uh, it's it will get even. Even nicer than this, but that's for future releases. <laughs> oh, I still, yeah, I still haven't done that in production at all. <laughs> okay. I, I run some some of my blades from from uh, from SD cards actually, internal uh, in the in the HP blades, so that works fine. I mean, uh, there's no really no uh, there's no problems with it uh, really, so it works out. Really nice, and as we as we've said, it's uh, it doesn't really rely all that much on the uh, the installation medium anymore. It runs out of memory anyway. Any of you guys done auto deployment of ESXi hosts with the completely automatic installation every time you boot them or something? I've seen. uh, Didn't Simon Gallagher do something neat with that in that he was pixie booting? Directly into ESXi and yeah. assigning a uh, a host profile as a result. But uh, I don't quite know if it's something everyone would do in production. Um, yeah, I'm still with ESXi. I'm still using host profiles for me, so no no automated scripts. Yeah, I've, I've created my own little deployment environment for the the vessel ex- experiments I'm, uh, experiments I'm I'm doing at the moment. But that that's just basically a, 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 a uh, isolated network that does automatic installation. It doesn't do the debooting of the uh, PXE target. Yeah, I believe if you use the little, um, oh, what's it called? The ESX deployment appliance, that's now been updated to 4.1. I'm sure I read somewhere. Yeah, the, uh, the auto deployment, auto deploy fling. Uh, no, no, not, not the fling. The one that was a okay. kind of a bit of a code branch of something called the Ultimate Deployment Appliance. It's oh, from, right. from VMware Labs, correct? <clears throat> no. No, no, no. You, you no it's just from the, the communities. Okay. Yeah. There, there are two at the moment. Uh, there's the UDA, but that uh, has now stopped. And there is the, uh, from a Dutch guy, um... Also something, uh, EDP or EDS, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, think, I think it's just called EDA. Um, oh, EDA, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And uh, I must say the 
the EDA is is much easier to use. Um, yeah, I remember having a play with it. Yeah, you can easily edit uh, all the sections of the different scripts. So um, you really get your first install done uh, very fast. And that supports all of your kickstarting as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think I've just found the link, so I'll, we'll make sure that goes into the uh, the show notes if his web page works. Ooh, web page doesn't work. It's on vmware.com as well as the ESX deployment appliance. Yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah. Um, but it had a, it had a fairly recent update, I think, to be yeah, able to do it seems support. to be supporting stateless ESXi for uh, and installation as well and boot from storage. So. A lot of fun stuff in there. I, I haven't played around with that one yet. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I can't, when I had a play with it, I don't recall it being able to deploy sort of fixed IPs from a pool. It was more from DHCP, and I don't really like running DHCP for servers. Yeah, and that's always that a little bit of an issue. Either, so. Yeah. <clears throat> so I guess well, you're almost going to need a build plan. Uh, you don't like. Uh, for DHCP for servers, but um, about two weeks ago I got uh, my first customer who uh, wanted to move away from fixed IP and have all servers uh, use DHCP. Um, and for some that had trouble with it, use DHCP with um, um, uh, reservations based on the MAC address. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's probably the only way I would want to use uh, DHCP on any of my servers or hosts uh, if I do the uh, the MAC address reser- reservations uh, to make sure they get the same IP every time. Yeah, uh, I've, done the, I've done the same. I had an environment in the past where it was uh, a DHCP server range, but for, I would say, maybe half of them had, uh, had reservations. Yeah, but if DNS works fine, you should be able to do without fixed IP addresses. So uh, with fix, I mean uh, fix by using MAC address from DHCP. Yeah, yeah, that's true. If, if DNS works, it's uh, it's uh, it sh- it shouldn't really be any problem. But I'm I'm kind of nervous about that anyway. If, if something breaks and you 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 can't do name resolution, you'll you'll have a problem trying to figure out where everything goes. If you if you have a, a, a some sort of um, both documentation as well as some kind of uh, plan on how you assign your static or reserved IP addresses. You, you, you'd probably be fine trying to figure out what's going on, but if not, you might run into some problems. Yeah, but I, I guess if you've got a configuration management database that's up-to-date uh, or dynamically updated, because if you're using DHCP, you're never going to want anyone to manually update it. That if if think, that if that's up to date, then you're okay. That and I think that um, our fear of using DHCP probably comes from years and years and years of us just not using it that way. Mm. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. there, there was a technique not so long ago. I think it's called virtual something. Oh yeah, virtualization. <laughs> There's also something. I've heard of that. Very much afraid because I never used. It. I, I hear it's on the up. Yeah, it's it's something that we should get into. Yeah, it's a fad. Yeah, I I don't know. It might be the year of virtualization. (laughs) Yeah, if if only people would talk about it some more. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good. Ramble on. 
Yeah. That's true. It's 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 probably just some kind of old school thinking about it. But uh, I'm I'm kind of nervous about not using static IPs anyway. So it might not be very well founded, but I'm still nervous about doing everything dynamically IP wise. Yeah, but also think about would you would you statically IP address all your all your um, workstations? No, no yeah, way. That would be terrible. Yeah. Yeah. True. Um, although workstations do tend to move about a bit more. I mean, at least a server, you're in theory only going to be rebooting it every every month or so. Yeah. For, there, for there's something. There's one thing I would always assign a static IP to, though. Uh, or there are a couple of things. One of them is a gateway, uh, and the, sec- the second ones are the actual DNS servers themselves. And domain controller, because you don't have a choice if you're in a Windows shop. Yeah, that's true. Which often are, are the actual DNS servers anyway. Yes. Yeah. So I guess you could get around it. Just It just takes... I, I still just have this dread of someone writing an application that uses NetBIOS name resolution or something. There, there is another, another, another thing as well. What if someone introduces a rogue DHCP server... And you have all your servers running out of DHCP. Yeah, that's what VLANing is supposed to be for, but... Yeah, well... Uh, yeah, I've actually, I've been in some old environments that weren't VLAN and had rogue DHCP servers take over the whole network kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think everyone's seen that one and the dissociated pain that it could cause. And then you go over the corner and there's an R&D guy with a plugged-in wireless thing saying, What, what? I've been hunting uh, road uh, DHCP servers by figuring figuring out MAC addresses and looking up which vendor delivered that specific series of MAC addresses and trying to figure out which equipment that it actually was dis- uh, handing out weird IPs in uh, in my network. Uh, most of the time, it's been my own fault, but some of the times it <laughs> haven't hasn't been. So uh, I remember one time we. Former employer of mine, where I was uh, actually in charge of uh, setting up the uh, the training rooms for Microsoft courses, and and, and there was this loopback uh, networking link between two points in the uh, in the uh, the actual uh, classroom, and if the, those two points were connected, uh, the uh, the classroom network was connected to the corporate network, uh, and when you fire up. I mean, 10, 15 Windows DHCP servers with their own scopes and connect those networks and leave, stuff starts to happen. So that, that was kind of a, like, I got a few phone calls out of that one. Yeah, but the, the cool, the thing I can think of is that you got a huge environment with thousands and thousands of servers. Um, you're you're going to want to IP address and document each one of those. I think just setting up separate ranges and putting these things in the separate VLANs are uh, its a really good idea if you have a huge, huge environment. Yeah, of course it is. But how how often do you actually see uh, organizations that been ha- has had their network going for 10, 15 years and then start VLANing it? And it, it, it usually just happens when you try to... Uh, Try to actually reorganize your network anyway. Uh, you don't have any. I, I, I haven't seen many networking guys start doing that in an existing network unless they're actually planning on 
reorganizing the entire network anyway. Well, Gabe, the one that you did it in was an existing environment. How big was it? No, that, that customer uh, was uh, the first one that really uh, was considering uh, doing that. And they had, I think, about 400 clients and 50 hosts, uh, 50 uh, um, Windows servers. That's oh, okay. not small, but not uh, uh, that's sort of big enough to make some difference, I guess. Yeah. Cool. Uh, just very briefly, um, Ed, you, you mentioned about the VMware Lab flings. Um, has anyone seen that, uh, the recently released one, that in theory allows uh, the VI client uh, to manage non-VMware hypervisors? No, I haven't seen that. I saw something about it. I, I haven't played with it or looked at it in any way, uh, but... I, I find it, find it kind of funny, uh, and I was actually one of the the, uh, the guys who did this. But someone commented, I think it was Eric Siebert. I'm not quite sure, but saying that, wow, that's a change of uh, of pace from VMware, who has said that they they wouldn't be doing that, uh, managing other hypervisors and stuff. But um, from the looks of it, it's it's a it's a VMware Labs fling. It's not an official. Yeah, I don't, I don't such, think it's so. going to go beyond a fling, personally. No. Uh, although, you know, VMware still wants to be that single pane of glass. If you look at those products that they're starting to, rather than saying, actually, no, you make your stuff integrate with ours, they're starting to be able to pull in data from other people's products. So, you know, it, if they do want to sit at the top of that management stack, that you've got, you've got to be able to pull in other people's data. By the looks of it, though, it's it's limited to Hyper-V as well. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the various flavors of the Microsoft one, but yeah. I, I dare say if if the guy that's coding it gets bored enough, he'll do it for Zen too. It can't be that different. Um, although I've seen some sneak peeks of the of you know sort of where Microsoft's been going um, and various sort of leaked leaked blogs that have been on and. It seems Microsoft are kind of going the other way. They they looked at trying to manage um, vSphere with the earlier versions of the Virtual Machine Manager, and the newer versions are doing it less. Yeah. Oddly enough, they, they decided, actually, we're not really going to be able to beat VMware at their own game. They manage VMware best. So rather than trying to manage hosts and clusters, they'll just pull in information about individual VMs, and they're really relying on the the system center stuff. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to actually do that. So I, I, I don't blame them for not trying to uh, blame Microsoft for not trying to manage uh, the whole vCenter uh, environment. Uh, but it, it's interesting. I, I, I wouldn't mind being able to manage everything from from one place, but well, well I think of, that's still going to happen. Yeah, it, it, it has to. In some some fashion, it has to go that way, way anyway. Well, I think the, uh, Microsoft is still going that way. Mm-hmm. Even yeah, even though they, uh, in in earlier versions, I felt like that, like they were trying to to copy uh, the whole ESX environment, so the whole vCenter environment, into uh, VMM. But uh, but I think that the new way they are going is to just um, shoot against a virtual center and, and like we do nowadays with PowerShell 
and yeah. they don't really care about it anymore because it's up, it's running, and we just handle all the, the VMs, and, what, and that's really what the customer needs to do. Yeah, I uh, 100% agree. Um, but, although, yes, it would be kind of cool. I mean, for the um, that version of the Flings, if you had your production environment on vSphere, and because you wanted to take advantage of MSDN licensing, your non-production environment, you license really cheaply on Hyper-V, uh, buy all your devs and MSDN license, and bingo, that's your entire non-prod infrastructure covered. Um, and you just, you're not massively fussed about huge consolidation or necessarily the performance that you would have, the, you know, the performance SLAs that you would need in your production environment, so you put it on a Hyper-V. But to be able to then manage it under the same workload, uh, sorry, the same uh, interface, and then potentially migrate workloads from the non-production into the production environment would seem like a, a good idea. I'm, I'm not sure, because basically, uh, would you want your test and development environment to be to be uh, on a different hypervisor than your product or production environment? It depends on whether you're testing the hypervisor or the workload. Yeah, I wouldn't put any of those things into production after they were running in a separate environment. That's no. just my... My, oh, in terms of actually migra- migrating the VM itself. Yeah. Okay, oh, that's fair enough. But if if the hypervisor is just a commodity, it should be the same. It just it'll just run better on vSphere. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I I wouldn't want two separate environments to to play with. Uh, even if one is production, and one is is testing or development. Uh, I would like it to be the same. I would like to be. Uh, have some kind of predictability as far as uh, everything goes and how closely the uh, the production or, or how closely the development uh, environment is to the actual production environment. So I, I, I don't think I'll, I'll want to run separate ones to, at least not to use to set up a test and development environment and then move it over to production. I wouldn't mind playing around with Different hypervisors in uh, in uh, different settings, or just if you're, as you said, Chris, uh, testing the the hypervisor itself. But I, I, I I'd be very wary of actually do uh, actually doing a split uh, hypervisor between production and test. So it's interesting. It'd just be nice if there was uh, cheaper VMware licensing for non-production environments. Yeah, when, you know, at the moment, money need does MSDN seem to be style yeah. thing for VMware subscription based. V- VMDN, yeah, come on VMware, make it happen. We we need v- VMware's answers to TechNet and yeah. and MSDN. That's true. Uh, that that would actually be be uh, uh, <laughs> that that would actually be worth paying something for. Yeah, yeah, just not full licenses payment. No, no, you pay it as, as a subscription to a service. It's. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think for me to suggest that um, is pre- preaching very much to the choir. All right, guys, I'm just going to wrap up here. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our guest this this week, Gabriel Van Zanten. You're welcome. And, Glad uh, to be there. Thanks. Listen in and check uh, www.vsoup.net, and we will announce the uh, winner of the la- of last episode's prize. <laughs>